And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, all about Lou Harrison, the late, great composer who died in 2003 at the age of 86, and whose influence, I think it is fair to say, has only grown since his death. Lou Harrison is known to many in our listening audience because he lived in this area. And if you know all about him, well, just bear with me while I introduce him to those who don't know him. Lou Harrison lived life and made art on his own terms, often far from the mainstream. He had been a key figure in the new music scene in New York in the 1940s, but he pulled up stakes and came west and settled in rural Aptos in 1954, which was maybe not such a great career move, but the place suited him. He embraced Eastern music, including Indonesian gamelan, and he had a love of tuneful melody and rhythmic physicality in an era when many modernist composers were becoming more atonal and abstract. He was an out and proud gay man at a time when the closet was quite crowded, and he was a restless creator of music and of instruments and even eco-friendly housing. It has taken a while for the world to catch up to Lou Harrison. Lou was also a founder of the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music, and he was an active participant right up to his death. And this year, on its 50th anniversary, the festival is paying tribute to him. There will be a performance of his third symphony, which was originally commissioned by the Cabrillo Festival. That's coming up August 11th. And also, tonight, Sunday, the Del Sol Quartet will be performing Lou Harrison's quartet set. And on top of all that, this past week, the Cabrillo Festival screened a new documentary film about Lou Harrison's life called Lou Harrison, A World of Music. I mentioned it on last week's 7th Avenue Project, and I played a short segment from an interview with the filmmaker, Eva Soltis. And as I promised then, today we are going to hear the whole interview. Eva Soltis, in addition to being a filmmaker, was a longtime friend and collaborator of Lou Harrison, and she founded the Harrison House Arts Residency Program in Joshua Tree, California, where she lives. Eva, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. You spent how many years working on this documentary about Lou Harrison? Oh, it's so hard to count. All I can say is I think the first piece of video that I did with Lou is in the film, and that was in 1984. So you you had in mind at that time a documentary? Didn't necessarily. I had in mind documenting. Uh huh. I had gotten a grant from the L.J. and Mary C. Skaggs Foundation to buy video equipment to go to India to document my dance teacher, Bala Saraswati. And she passed away um, the week before I was leaving, and um, I turned my camera on Lou. Wow. You are a longtime student of, this may seem like a digression, but I don't think it is, longtime student of uh, Bharata Natyam, classical right. Indian dance. Yes. And your main teacher was Bala Saraswati. That's right. And so your mentor, your, your maestra, had, had just died? Yeah, she she passed away, and it was you know kind of a big shock. And but I realized you know at the time that we were the first generation to have the possibility to record our you know our treasured people, our mentors, our you know our elders, um, treasured artists. And um, I set about trying to do that because I thought, my goodness, Lou was such a wonderful person. And I met him in the American Society for Eastern Arts program in the, in the middle 70s where I was studying Bharatanatyam. And so that's how I met Lou. And it was um, 
uh, you know, just a wonderful relationship that built over time. And so it was very multifaceted. And I began to recognize Lou as a, an extraordinary artist, an extraordinary person, somebody whose music reached people in a very deep way. And it wasn't till really, I, I mean, maybe even after his death or, or just around those later years that I began to realize the depth of his association with dance. Uh-huh. Uh, even though he had written music for me. And I was aware of the fact that, um, you know, he had had kind of, a, you know, some kind of an association with dance that he had, you know, been um, commissioned by a lot of famous dancers and so forth. I knew about that. But I don't know that I actually, you know, realized that probably for me, too, being a dancer, that I had a very deep attraction to his music, you know, from that point of view. Well, as your as your film shows, I mean, he worked with people like uh, you know Merce Cunningham, and all the way through Mark Morris. You know, some of the great choreographers. Absolutely, of the last and it 50 was years. In, in the editing of the film actually that I began to put that whole story together. I was like, of course, you know, dance has been this really strong stream. I mean, I knew that, but I realized it in a different way. And I think the final part of the realization was, oh, wait, wow, wait a minute, I'm a dancer. And that may be why I'm so deeply reached by it, too. But, I, you know, I think in general, Lou's music, you know, reaches into people's hearts and bodies and, and um, you know, it's a very deep experience. His music was sensual, it was physical. Um, I remember seeing a, a recital of and I may get the exact name of this piece wrong because uh, I'm just remembering this, but it was performed at UCSC maybe uh, 10 years ago. Lou was there, um, and it was from the early 40s, I believe, and uh, it was for percussion, and it rocked. I mean, it had yeah. these polyrhythms. It was just, it was ahead of its time, really. Uh, he was so ahead of his time. <laughs> I mean, and, and, I, and it's one of the things, you know, when he passed away in 2003, I um, people were pressuring me. They're going now. It's time. It's time. You better. You better finish the movie. You have a tiny window. You have a tiny window. And I would look and I would shake my head. I said, No, the window's only going to get bigger. It, you know, this is not a tiny window. I had such, you know, faith in who he is. It was as an artist and as a composer that the work is going to gradually become more and more important. And I think that's true. Um, so you say you started filming not knowing necessarily that it would be a documentary film, uh, mm-hmm. but you started in, in 1984, right. and, and here the film has come out uh, in, in 2012, so we're talking about, uh, I know, it's 30 years almost. Uh, I know, I know. Isn't that amazing? And so even for me, um, it's amazing. So I just began to collect footage about Lou, and it, and it wasn't just him. I mean, there was other people. I, I was documenting my teacher's family. I was, you know, documenting all kinds of things. But Lou was the main thing that I was focused on. And I worked with him in many different capacities. I mean, he would call me when he needed my help. I would arrange tours for him. I produced his music all over the world. And um, I just began to feel that, you know, for one thing, I loved being with him and with his partner, Bill, so much. It was always just a wonderful experience, just, you know, spending time with them and traveling with them. Um, I just felt more and more that I needed to do something about him, you know, so that people, he could be here in the world in his own words. 
and in his own person. He was so colorful and, and, and just so wonderful to be with. So I didn't intend to do a biography in the beginning at all. I had this idea to follow the making of his opera, Young Caesar, because it had been such a central part of his work. It started in 72 when he met Bill and was going to end up, you know, at the Lincoln Center Festival, and I helped get that commission for him for the arias. And so, I mean, obviously, because you've seen the film, um, when that fell apart, I was just kind of stunned. Actually, at first it was postponed. Well, well you're going to have to tell the rest of our listeners uh, who haven't seen the film mm-hmm. the story of this opera. Uh, I was going to ask you about it a little later in the interview, but let's just go ahead. Let's forget about well, chronology. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the thing was, when, when Lou finally met his life partner, Bill Kolvig, in 1972, it, I think for both of them was a very stunning thing. I think that Bill had been, um, as he once said to me, he was suicidal because he was gay. He just, you know therapist had tried to talk him out of it, and he just he just didn't know what to do. He just didn't feel like he fit in. And I think Lou had long, really, really yearned for a partner, you know, for a family life. And so when he met Bill, it was huge. And I think Bill said to him, why don't you write a gay opera? And Lou just seized on the idea immediately and said, yes, this is something I have to do. And it's really, you know, over as he would say in the film, over a very long period of time, was important to him. Um, And so he began by making a puppet opera and with a small ensemble, and that's when Bill started the old granddad instruments. And so that was, you know, know, that was their big collaboration. Bill was going to make these instruments, gamelan-like instruments, in a Western scale, and the reason to do a puppet opera, number one, Lou had a whole history with being attracted to puppet works anyway, and um, it was a way to get it done that you didn't have to rely on an opera company or you know a ton of musicians. So that's how it started out as a puppet opera, and it was probably the first gay opera. In the 80s, the uh, Portland Gay Men's Chorus commissioned a choral you know, uh, version from Lou, and it became a staged work. The Lincoln Center Festival commissioned arias in um, the 90s from Lou, and he really wanted that work to happen. So um, eventually, after 9-11, the Lincoln Center Festival couldn't afford to do it, so Lou's opera never happened there. Um, And it was a big disappointment to him, and at some point he just turned his attention to building his straw bale house in the desert. You know, the opera wasn't to be. Uh-huh. And and this is uh, the, the Harrison House in uh, Joshua Tree, which uh, you live in, is that right? I live across the street from it. Oh, you I actually, Yeah, I actually keep it as the Harrison House, as a place for artist residency and music. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so um, that, you know, that's what it's been dedicated to. I also do my own, you know, artistic work there. I teach dance, and I edited the film there. Right. Uh, moved all the equipment in and so forth. But I don't live there. I really want to keep it in loose spirit. Right. And he was very proud of the acoustic great room that he built. And I think, it, for me, it's his kind of last and one of his greatest instruments. So it's a superb place to hear acoustic music. Wow. Um, we, we do have a recording uh, from one of the arias of uh, Young Caesar. Um, I'm just going to play a little bit of it right now. What is a
So a segment of an aria from the opera Young Caesar uh, by Lou Harrison. And Eva, you say that that was written in 1972, is that right, originally? It was begun then. Begun in 1972. It took a while to to complete. Um, And it was Lou Harrison's desire at that time to create a gay opera. He was gay. Uh, he He had struggled with his gay identity at that point? Well, I, I think there was a period in his life when he struggled with it. He had a nervous breakdown in the 40s in New York, and I believe that, you know, that there was some issues there. He came out of that nine months in a hospital and wrote his opera Rapunzel. I think that part of that is grappling with his gayness. Uh, but at some point in his life, he really accepted who he was, as he did earlier in his life. But I think at some point there was a lot of pressure for him about being gay, but he embraced who he was more fully than anybody I've ever met, you know, in every way. Um, so that's one of the things that impressed me about Lou, that he was so sure of his identity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I also want to add a little bit about the Ari we just heard, and it actually, after Lou's death, got performed, and Nicole Piemont, who was there at UC Santa Cruz, I think probably still is, mounted it with Brian Stauffenbiel. And so they did do the opera, both in San Francisco and at UC Santa Cruz, but after Lou passed away. And and I think those are the recordings that Nicole conducted and Brian is singing in. Aha. Uh-huh. Eva, I was reading about you uh, on your website, and it said, uh, Saltis has devoted her career to bringing the work of underappreciated artists, art forms, and cultures um, to the public. Um was Lou Harrison, do you think, in his lifetime underappreciated? I think he was, actually. I think although he is in history books as an important composer, I, I think that he was not as widely known as he should have been, and I think part of it is that he never promoted himself. He sequestered himself in the woods of Aptos and just did his work in a very you know, pure way, really guarding his muse. I think he did a, a couple of things. Uh, one is to choose a part of the world where, where there aren't many critics and where the uh, establishment isn't located. So Correct. he was this West Coast guy in an East Coast world. Uh, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was. And, and he was doing quite well on the East Coast. He was very, very highly regarded. But, you know, if you don't show up, you know, you don't get talked about and written about. And that's, unfortunately, the way of our world. It's, it's media 
run. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's connected by the media. Right, right. I mean, when he was in New York uh, in, what, the late 30s, or was it um, early 40s? No, it 40s? was from about 43 to 53. Okay, great. Uh, his, you know, his circle included... You know, some of the most important people in mid-century, you know, modernism. Merce Cunningham, John Cage, Virgil Thompson. Um, it's a who's who, really, when you look at who he was, uh, you know, it, who it his peers were. It is a who's who. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I have heard, I mean, that, you know, he was very much one-on-one with Joseph Campbell. And it was soon after Lou came out of his nine months in, you know, the mental hospital that he began working closely with Jean Erdman, um, Joseph Campbell's wife. And... Most of his friends thought that that was it for Lou. He was never going to compose. He'd had such a severe breakdown that he wasn't going to recover from it in any significant way, but he did. And so some people feel that Joseph Campbell's work, Hero of a Thousand Faces, was based on Lou's life. Oh, wow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Lou had influences that we don't even know about. I mean, he was just an influential person that caused great movements to happen. And, you know, the Straw Bale House is one example of that. He pushed boundaries. He pushed boundaries. He created a house that was structural straw. It's not the kind of, you know, the thing that just uses straw as insulation. The whole structure is straw because he didn't want wood to be used. You know, too much wood gets cut down. And so, you know, there's so many straw bale buildings now in Joshua Tree and in the world, and this house is a, it's a landmark. You know, people in architecture departments know about it everywhere. But I think we can't begin to uncover the things that Lou influenced. I, I had written an article for the L.A. Times a few years back about Lou, and there was a letter to the editor from a woman that was in Lou's dance class that he accompanied at Stanford in the early 60s. She said most of the members of the, the Grateful Dead and Baba Ramdas were in that class, and he felt that Lou had propelled them into their work, you know, which was the whole acid rock scene in the 60s. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not kidding. She wrote that in this letter to the editor, that he had really influenced that as well. <laughs> okay, well, that's something I was not aware of even after having seen your film. Um, it's not in the film, yeah, yeah. because that sort of thing is it's too difficult to say everything. You right. cannot say everything. But I, I, I attempted in my film to just give the feeling of who Lou was as a person, what his life was like. Right, right. Um, well, certainly one of the, you know, his major contributions uh, to, to Western music was the way he integrated Asian influences. And your, as your film shows, he was exposed to Asian music very early. Uh, he grew up in the Bay Area, Um, and he had gone to Chinatown and seen Chinese operas. He'd seen merchants playing traditional Chinese instruments. Mm -hmm. I've read that he was exposed to gamelan uh, at the Pan Pacific Exposition or whatever it was called. That's right, he was, Uh, and that was his first. He heard a Balinese gamelan um, in the late 30s in the the Pan Pacific, or the middle 30s uh, exposition. And that was, by the way, an exposition that was for which uh, Treasure Island was actually built, this artificial island in the middle of the bay, Right. And had this featured this amazing fantasy architecture, uh, this sort of imaginary city. I can't remember. Did they call it something like Pacifica or something? I don't know. Actually, that that I don't know. It was quite. It was quite something. Although it was all torn down because World War II started immediately and it became a, uh, a naval base. But right. Um, but that he saw Gamelon at that point, and it started to. He did, and and so 
he remembered how beautiful it was. And, and early on, too, he saw a Javanese dancer uh-huh. at the current theater. So he was exposed to world culture. Plus, um, you know, his main mentor then, Henry Cowell, had traveled all over the world and had amassed a library of world music, which was unheard of right. American music at that time. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly, and today we're talking about the life and work of the late composer, Aptos resident, and political activist Lou Harrison. My guest is Eva Soltis, whose new documentary about Lou Harrison, called Lou Harrison, A World of Music, was screened this past week at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. The festival is featuring two works by Lou Harrison in upcoming concerts, And you can learn more about that at cabriomusic.org. And uh, before I return to the interview, I want to add to and correct a couple of things I said earlier in the conversation. First of all, that uh, percussion piece that I talked about toward the beginning of the interview uh, by Lou Harrison and that I saw performed at UC Santa Cruz but couldn't remember the name of, the uh, title is Symphony, that's S-I-M-F-O-N-Y, number 13. And it was performed on Lou's 80th birthday in 1997. Also, the exposition where Lou reportedly first saw Indonesian gamelan performed was called the Golden Gate International Exposition on Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay, not the Pan-Pacific Exposition, as I erroneously put it. And now back to today's interview with filmmaker Eva Soltis talking about the life and music of Lou Harrison. Um, now, people in our area who uh, followed Lou's music, who knew him or participated in some of the, the musical events, are probably super familiar with his gamelan-based work. There were gamelan mm-hmm. ensembles right. uh, around here in Santa Cruz, still are, um, very active place for that kind of music. But I just thought I'd play one example. Um, tell me if you think this is a good one. Um, La Coro Sutro? La Coro Sutro, I think, is, is just a fabulous work, and that uses the first gamelan set that Bill made. That's the um, old granddad set. And I think that's a fantastic piece. I I produced many performances of that work, and I took all those instruments to Japan. We were in Japan for a month, Lou and Bill and I. And I saw how it made the people weep when they heard the music, the elder people. And they, they were so stoic, the ones that were in the war. They said, how did you know our childhood melodies? And Lou had written those things, knowingly or not, I don't know. And they cried, and I thought, oh, my gosh, we have to preserve those instruments. It was so difficult. I spent a month with them kind of gluing things and painting things and just putting the instruments back together so they could be, you know, sound beautiful to lose ear. And I thought, wow, when they're gone, ha, ah, nobody's going to be able to do this. And so we had another set of these instruments built, and they're now being used all over to perform that work. So I think it's one of Lou's beautiful works, La Cara Sutra. It's the Heart Sutra written in Esperanto. <laughs> written in Esperanto, yes. Uh, so let's play just a, a little excerpt from La Cora Sutra. Oh. 
So a little bit there from La Cora Sutro by Lou Harrison. And that featured uh, a kind of gamelan based on Indonesian gamelan, but it was actually built by Bill Kolvig, uh, Lou Harrison's partner. And it was called American Gamelan? It was the American Gamelan. It was the first set of instruments that were gamelan-like that they built. Later on, when Lou met his main Javanese mentor, Pak Chokro, who was the familiar name, then Bill took on building two sets of really traditional-sounding Javanese instruments. But this set, the American Gamelan, was the precursor to Lou really delving into the study of Javanese music. You mentioned that this piece was uh, performed um, in Japan, and it really moved the people who heard it. Um, now, now, that's not their music. Gamelan is obviously you know, quite different from Japanese music, but they related to it, you're saying? They related to it because there was something about the modes that Lou selected and the melodies that are written into the piece that they recognized as their own. And that is just another indication of how international Lou was as a person. And I believe that part of that work, though, is also about him working through the the dropping of the bomb, you know, which was part of what caused his nervous breakdown. He understood what it meant for humanity when the bombs were dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And Lakaro Sutra, the Heart Sutra, is a Buddhist text written in the language of Esperanto. And I think that Lou went to Japan in the early 60s for the first time. And somehow, I think that, you know, consciously or not, I never talked to him about it. Um, <clears throat> this was a work that was trying to heal those wounds. Mm. Well, as as your movie um, depicts during the the battle days of uh, atomic testing, uh, mm-hmm. he actually composed a work. Was it for orchestra or for chamber ensemble? It uh, was. It never got finished. You know, it was for narrator and ensemble, and I think only the one movement, uh, part of which we reenacted for the film, um, recreated, um, was ever done. And so somehow, even though it was a masterful piece. It got abandoned, and I think he he used parts of it in other works eventually. Let me explain, though, that it incorporated the sound of actual Geiger counters yes. uh, picking up the, the background radiation from fallout, yes. uh, because fallout at that time from these above-ground nuclear tests was actually sort of circulating widely in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a, a really sensitive Geiger counter, you know, in this performance, mm-hmm. even though they were nowhere near the Nevada testing grounds, mm-hmm. um, they could still pick up this radiation. That's right, and Lou knew it, and so he was quite obsessed with what the government was doing, and so the work that he wrote um, was all about governments and all about how they should act and what they should be doing for people, and, you know, as opposed to irradiating the population. And so he was very, very upset about all that, and and, uh, that was also in the 50s during a time where people were building bomb shelters, and there was a lot of... um, fear about nuclear weapons, you know, rightly so. Lakora Sutro, the piece from which we just played an excerpt, uh, as you said, was written in Esperanto. Mm-hmm. L- Lou Harrison spoke. Esperanto is one of that rare group that, uh, <laughs> he did. that mastered and Esperanto. He did. And in fact, when he went to Japan on the first trip, he did so by, I mean, it was a Rockefeller grant and it was a big East-West conference and so forth, but he extended... Um, himself to the Esperanto community there. So it was the Esperanto community that met him 
and that, you know, took him around and so forth that he was communicating with. And so he absolutely used it um, in, his, in his travels to the East. And, and was that just part of his feeling uh, of universality, of uniting all nations and cultures? Yes, a universal language, mm. absolutely. Hmm. Um, you know, we spoke briefly about how he was underappreciated maybe among the tastemakers of the East Coast, partly because he did go west and, and live, you know, sort of off the grid in Aptos. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing was the style of his music. When he left New York, Lou left the, the you know, the dissonant uh, composing of the time that everybody was expected to do. I mean, it was like 12-tone music, and if you weren't doing that, you weren't writing music. And, and he went toward melody. And he was, you know, because he was, as, as people know him, he was so flamboyantly gay. And in another interview, he said, you know, in the West Coast, we're not afraid of sounding pretty. And so, again, it's part of him embracing who he was as a person and what he wanted to write. And it was beautiful music. And he wrote these long, fabulous melodies. You know, people that listen to his music and know it will, you know, instantly recognize his work. And so he would say, music is a song and a dance. You get the rhythm right, and you get the melody right. What more can you ask? You know? <laughs> then he'd say, oh, no, you have to choose the pitches. You know, you can't, you know, you can't rely on what you're given. So he did not like uh, the Western system of, you know, how we've kind of bent our pitches to, you know, so that the piano can play in all different keys. Lou was a, a big uh, lover of just intonation so that you pick your pitches and you write your music accordingly, and then it sounds all very beautiful. Well, that was so out of fashion, and so musically he was shunned, you know, by the East Coast. Personally, he's very openly gay, and although many, many, many of the, you know, the East Coast composers were gay, they were very closeted, and some of them married women to cover it up, and, you know, all that stuff, and so... I think Lou also suffered a kind of, um, uh, how to say that, he, he suffered from the gay community as well, because he was out, and a lot of people didn't want to be outed by being associated with him. Oh, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you're mentioning his musical aesthetic, which was definitely unfashionable. He made beautiful music. Um, mm-hmm. I think almost anybody listening to it could immediately sense how palpably sensuous and mm-hmm. and sometimes danceable. He loved rhythm and melody. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, uh, it was that thing that some in classical contemporary classical shun accessible. It was it was, it was accessible, to- and then accessible. that was you know that's what he would say. That's the audience's paycheck. You know, <laughs> they, they get to hear something that's beautiful that makes them feel good. And I think nowadays it's it's much more you know acceptable. And composers are writing melodies, you know, and and, and uh, it's come back around. But in Lou again was ahead of his time in that way. Uh, he did, though, uh, in his college years, study at UCLA with Arnold Schoenberg, and you know, mm-hmm. other got to know other modernists who were creating work that people would consider pretty abstract, inaccessible, and not aiming at uh, at least common notions of beauty. Uh, and he got along with those guys too, yeah. He did because Lou was so intellectually astute, and he was a wonderful student. And so I would always think of him as a craftsman. 
he very well understood how to compose that kind of music. He could compose almost anything because he knew how it was done. And when he needed to, he would rely on those. For example, um, one landmark work, that it's not in the film, but um, Pacifica Rondo. One of the movements, Hatred of the Filthy Bomb, is written in 12-tone you know, style because it's very dissonant and very angry and very ugly. Mm. And so Lou went to that form you know, for, to, to express that. So it's not that he didn't know how. He was very highly respected, and I think Schoenberg honestly admired how, Lou, how inventive Lou was writing within the 12-tone system. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I, at this point, I'd like to play another landmark work, uh, one that's very relevant to the, the discussion today. Uh, just a little bit of the Third Symphony, uh, originally written, I think, in 1982. Mm-hmm. You use it in the film, mm-hmm. and it was commissioned uh, for the Cabrillo Festival. Uh, right. And it's going to be performed this year. I it think. is. It's going to be performed on Saturday, August 11th. Mm-hmm. It's been performed multiple times at the festival from its uh, premiere performance to today, partly because Lou revised it and really he changed kept it. Revising yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and kept revising it. Was that typical of him? Yes, it was. And he, I mean, I, I, if you look at his scores, sometimes there's a span of 30 or 40 years, you know, they're written from two, you know, because he would think about things and he would, you know, he would really grapple with problems he had. And then one day he'd say, oh, wait, I know how to solve that. And so he would continuously revisit things, and and he would cannibalize his own work as well. You know, he would steal from himself. <laughs> you know, if he had a new commission or something he wanted to write, he'd go, "Oh yeah, no, I like the movement of that. I'm gonna I'm gonna include that. I'm gonna put it over there." So yeah, he did do that, and and I know he was constantly revising that. And Dennis Russell Davies, who premiered it, you know, tells a funny story of how Lou you know, revised it and revised it and revised it and said, okay, I think this is the final version. This is terrific. And then he revised it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's hear just a little bit of the first movement of Lou Harrison's Third Symphony. And this is the Cabrillo Festival Orchestra under the baton of the conductor Dennis Russell Davies, good friend of Lou Harrison's, um, recorded in 1991 mm-hmm. at uh, UC Santa Cruz.
that was just a little bit of the first movement of the Third Symphony by Lou Harrison, uh, which is going to be performed at the Cabrillo Festival this year in 2012 on August 11th, Saturday night. A work that really is, I think people would say, a signature work, Eva? Well, it is. I mean, it's, you know, for example, I just was gifted a free sound design at Universal Studios by the head sound designer, Chris Jenkins, who says that Lou Harrison's Third Symphony is his favorite piece of music in the world. Uh Wow. And because of that, the whole film got this beautiful free 5-1 surround sound, which actually, this coming uh, screening at the Del Mar Theater is going to be its first time out with the new sound design um, in, a, in, a, in a big theater. But um, it's a signature work in a way, but it's a work that shows the breadth of who Lou was as a composer, because I would think it's the most typically Western piece that he's written um, in, a, in a certain way. And, it, and then the reach goes all the way to the percussive works, to the gamelan works, to the Chinese music. So it shows that Lou did know how to write a very fantastic and beautiful Western symphony piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we should say about your film that it is packed with music. Uh, I couldn't wait to get to the credits. Not that I wanted the film to be over, but I just wanted to see the, the list. And, uh, it was a big list. Yeah, it was a very long list of his work from throughout his career, at least yeah. what's available on recording. Well, it was always my idea that the music would tell the story. Mm-hmm. And I hope that you found that to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've been talking off and on about how he wasn't, um, you know, recognized or fully recognized during his lifetime. I, I do remember a New Yorker article that came out. Uh, you probably know the, the mm-hmm. year. Uh, it, was before, it was the mid-'80s. I can't remember the exact Mid-'80s, and I think it yeah. saluted him as one of or maybe America's greatest living composer. And I wonder if that changed things for him at all. Yes and no. I mean, I think what happened toward the end of Lou's life, well, for one thing, I started managing his commissions, but he didn't really want commissions. He really hated commissions, and he also really, he wouldn't, even though he would call on me to help him with his business things, he really didn't want anybody representing him fully. You know, he would, like, if I got too far in that direction, he'd kind of, like, bonk me over the head and make me dance. You know, he'd sent me out to do a dance performance because he wrote music for me, too. Um, So in a way, it did, and in a way, um, I think Lou kept it from happening in a a broader way. I mean, I think he certainly was recognized. um, You know, he had a cult following in the music world, and the people that know his work and followed his work are just, you know, deeply, deeply moved and involved in it. And when I did a little uh, pre screening at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., I was totally surprised by that. It was, you know, about a year and a half ago. Um, I don't think Lou was ever in Washington, D.C. I'm quite sure he wasn't. Oh, really? I don't think he ever went there, Um, but, uh, or for anything meaningful anyway, I really don't think so, but there was a very packed house, and the Q&A was uh, just over the top. I got very difficult questions from people who knew every nuance about Lou, it, it seemed like. And so... Oh, interesting. Yeah, so people that knew his work and followed him were absolutely in love with it. And these, in a way, are the people that I've made the film for, you know, so that we can still have that Lou in our lives, and hopefully it helps, you know, to hear his voice and to, you know, to know some of his stories. 
but it's also for students and people who weren't alive in his own time so that he can, you know, speak for himself in history. Mm-hmm. That New Yorker article in the 80s definitely did a lot for his national reputation, I would imagine, among people who didn't follow him closely, unlike the people you just mentioned. But but then after he died, um, I think Alex Ross in the New Yorker wrote a remembrance, mm-hmm. uh, again, full of praise for his work. But he, he had this uh, little passage, um, and I think this maybe says something about attitudes. Um, he had many of the characteristics that you would expect to find in a man who lived in the vicinity of Santa Cruz. He wore a ponytail. He hated war. He was fascinated by non-Western cultures. He collected found objects and played them as percussion instruments. Mm-hmm. He spoke Esperanto fluently and set several texts in that language. He was unashamed of being a gay man and proclaimed it even back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But hippy-dippy cliches do not suffice, etc., etc. Wait a minute. All those things are just hippy-dippy cliches, right? and this exactly. Alex Ross has to sort of excuse those right. facets of his personality in order to get on with his importance as a composer? Exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. You know, that is, that's attitude right there. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, you know, for me, well, guess what? You know, Lou and I are in the same clan, so I grew up the same way he did, you know what I mean? You know, in the in, in you know Bay Area in the, in the 60s. I'm a little younger, but, you know, still. So I'm like, you know what? You know, he's one of my mentors. He's one of my elders. And so now I'm going to celebrate that part of his life. Well, the world has, is catching up to that viewpoint, I think, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Uh, um, we haven't really talked about his relationship to the Cabrillo Festival, but it goes all the way back. Well, he was one of the founders, really. And, yeah. I, you know, again, it being a film and not a book, I right. couldn't say everything about right, it. But right. <clears throat> what happened is that Lou um, got very uh, involved with the Sticky Wicket, which his, you know, it was right down the hill from him. Which is what? Uh, the Sticky Wicket was this little <laughs> cafe, you know, uh, little bookstore, gallery place that... Um, Sydney Jowers and her husband, uh, Vic, uh, founded. And it happened to be right down the hill from Lou, and it was this wonderful little, you know, center of intellectual work. In Aptos, California. In Aptos, California. And this was the early 60s, right, when he settled there? It was actually, I think, the late 50s. Late 50s, okay. Yeah, Lou settled there in 1954. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the Sticky (laughs) Wicket actually might have opened, I'm trying to think now, 57 or 58, something like that. Um, so Lou had been there for a while before they opened. And um, so then eventually Robert Hughes, who was, you know, I think, a major disciple of Lou's, moved from the East Coast to study with Lou because he had heard, you know, some recordings of his work and was just, you know, really, really, you know, uh, impressed by by Lou. So he moved there. And so together, Lou's thing that he learned from Henry Cowell was gather friends around you and play music. Don't wait to be invited. Just, you know, organize a circle of friends and just do it. So, you know, by and by, I think with his influence, they built a little theater and started doing music programs at the Sticky Wicket. And uh, Sidney Jowers was aware that Lou had been a critic, so she said, well, would you review some of them so we can get a little more recognition? And so Lou said, okay. He would handwrite these reviews, and she would type them up. And then they'd get published in the paper. So Lou, you know, started, and he was quite a wonderful reviewer. I mean, Lou had written, you know, 300 or more reviews in New York. Um, that's, he was mainly a critic in New York and, and a composer for dance music, actually. Um, 
so it was really Lou's influence of encouraging people to gather friends around them and to, um, you know, have concerts. Eventually, when the Sticky Wicket, um, <clears throat> the highway, uh, actually kind of cut off access to them when the new freeway was built, and the Sticky Wicket folded, and then this all got transferred to Cabrillo College, and so it became the beginnings of the Cabrillo Music Festival. So uh-huh. it was very much Lou's influence that started it. And then for many years, he was involved with every one of the festivals. His works were performed at most, if not all, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the first few decades, I think. That's right, and I think over 30 years. And it, it, it was so rare. I always admired the Santa Cruz community for championing one of their own because so often, you know, whoever comes, you know, the grass is always greener. <laughs> whoever comes from farthest away is the one most appreciated. But, you know, with the case of the Cabrillo Festival, I thought it was a fabulous thing that they really appreciated Lou and that he was so much loved in the Santa Cruz area. In his later years, was he, you know, was he comfortable financially? Had he gotten enough recognition from the... Um, you know, yes and no. Lou once told me that <clears throat> when he had too much money in the bank, he'd get lazy. Uh-huh. So I think he took care of it. <laughs> I think he saved and saved and saved to build the Straw Bale House because he was never one to borrow money. That was never going to happen for him. And so he took commissions and stashed the money away. So toward the end, he was like, <clears throat> you know, especially doing things so that he could build the Straw Bale House and have the cash to do it. So he did stockpile, you know, a bunch of money, and but then spent it all on the house. So it's not that he had a huge savings. And in addition to that, you know, he, he was a member of BMI. And, you know, I would get involved with Lou in his business because he, he wanted me to and, and it would invite me to. And I said, Lou, they're really not giving you a big enough advance on your royalties for who you are as a composer. He'd say, no, leave it alone. I don't want to fight with anybody. I won't do that. So, in fact, you know, he was fine uh, you know, but it's not that he had excesses of money at all. He really didn't, you know. So he, he certainly, you know, could meet his needs and so forth, but he saved to build that house, that house, this house that I am so happy to have in Joshua Tree. Um, and so it's not like he died wealthy. Uh, the reason I ask is because I understand he had to struggle at many points in his career. I'd read mm-hmm. that, um, I think this is from the Wikipedia article on him, that he'd had at various times to work as a record salesman, a florist, an animal nurse, mm-hmm. and a forestry firefighter. Mm-hmm. He did. <laughs> Some of those jobs are very early in San Francisco when he was, you know, still a teenager and uh-huh. but uh, the animal nurse is what he did when he was in Aptos uh-huh. uh, for, for many, many years, and he would work all day and then come home and then compose all night, and he would sometimes sleep an hour a night, you know, because he would really gave due diligence to his composing. He never stopped doing that. And John Adams once said that Lou, John Adams, the composer, that Lou inspired him in that way to compose every day, you know, as a habit, to just compose every day and do it. Hmm. Um, You know, I don't know whether he still does, but I did hear him say that one time. So Lou stole from the night, um, and he was very poor, and I, I, you know, most of his life, actually. And... um, I think that was part of his breakdown as well. He did not do well on the edge. Hmm. You know, he really he really needed some stability around him. Hmm. 
Well, Eva, it's been so nice talking to you, and um, let's pick a, another piece of Lou Harrison's music to finish with. Okay. What about one of his hybrid gamelan works? Uh, let you pick. Mind Bersama Sama. Mind Bersama Sama. Want to say a word about it? Um, yeah, I think it. I think it in that language it means everybody playing together, and I think that's what was important to Lou: community and um, and doing things in beautiful tunings together. Mind Bersama Sama by Lou Harrison. Thank you, Eva. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Eva Soltis, and you can learn more about her film, Lou Harrison, A World of Music, at louharrisondocumentary.com. And uh, as I mentioned, there are some upcoming performances of Lou Harrison's work at the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music. You can learn more about those performances at cabrillomusic.org. And a couple more corrections on things I got wrong during the interview. I said that recording of Lou Harrison's Third Symphony was made in 1991. It was actually recorded in 1990. And that was the uh, opening of the first movement that we heard, by the way. And also that New Yorker article that I said brought more attention to Lou Harrison late in his life was from 1996, not the mid-80s. Errata. We make them, we fix them as best we can here on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week, and you can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. 